Well, thank you for being here on Good Friday. I know this is not quite the uh, festivity that we had yesterday with a wonderful feast. It was, I think most of you were there, it was a wonderful time together. Um, But I'm glad that we are all here on Good Friday thinking about a more somber day when Jesus was delivered up to be crucified when the Son of God was put to death. Let's pray and we're going to spend a few minutes contemplating that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Help us to have our eyes cleared, distractions pushed away as we strive to look at that painful moment when Jesus cried out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he endured your wrath and the evil of mankind. Lord, help us to know that, to know what it means, to know what it means for us to give you glory. I pray that you would help us to see clearly today what it meant and what it means that Christ died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the striking characteristic of this particular gospel account, right? All of the gospel accounts give us different aspects, different focuses on the crucifixion. It's the key point in every gospel account, but they all say it a little bit differently. They emphasize different things. And in this passage today, one of the main things that we see is this element of kingship. This element of of being crowned, of being given a scepter, of, of being or perhaps, in their eyes, not being the king. So if I were to ask you what it means to be king, I wonder what you would tell me. I remember a sermon not too long ago when I think Bill asked this question of his grandchildren, and their, their answers overall were fairly entertaining. Um, but I think our, our answers would probably be something like, being king means having authority, right? It's reasonable, having power. It means being in charge. It means being the one who makes the rules and makes sure that everyone else follows the rules. On the positive side, it might mean a benevolent sort of loving care for your subjects. But we would probably say that it means not being powerless. I think of The Lion King, which may not have been what you were expecting on Good Friday. Uh, There's a song early in that wonderful musical, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. Okay, I always have to look at when I make cultural references. Like, am I either too old or too young? <laughs> um, do you remember that song? Right, I'm going to be a mighty king, so enemies beware. I'm going to be the main event like no king was before. I'm brushing up, I'm looking down, I'm working on my roar. It's hard to say it and not sing it, but not today. Uh, no one's saying, do this. No one's saying, be there. No one's saying, stop that. No one's saying, see here. Isn't that what our idea of kingship is? is No one gets to tell me no. No one gets to lord it over me. Nobody gets to make me feel small. But I wonder if we were to ask Jesus what it means to be a king, I wonder what he would fold us. Or I wonder what he will tell us. Today's passage has been referred to as a double irony. If you're in my class a few weeks ago, you may have uh, heard me talk about this. We may have discussed this together. But it's a double irony. On the one hand, the soldiers and the crowd seems to consider themselves pretty funny. 
right? They, they said, I know what we can do. Uh, this man has said that he is a king, so wouldn't it be funny, wouldn't it be amusing uh, if we dressed him up like a, like a real king? He certainly doesn't look like a king. Let's make him look the part, right? Let's give him a robe. You know, Frank, you've got a robe on, right? You know, your old kind of soldier's dirty robe. Let's take that off, and that'll be his robe. Um, we'll look on the side of the road and pull some thorn bushes up and twist it into a crown for him. And then, look, there, there by the, the pond there, you know, there's, there's a reed growing up, right? You think about maybe as a child, did you ever play swords? Um, at least I did. You know, and what did you do? You, you grabbed a stick from the backyard and you said, this is, this is my sword. And it was kind of like that. It was this ridiculous image of the king of the Jews holding this scepter made out of a reed found on the roadside. Aren't we funny that we dress up the, the king of Israel, quote unquote, in this way? Right? I, can't, I just can't wait to be king. But that's only half of the irony. Right? The other half is that in those very acts of mockery, in those very acts of laughing at Jesus, what these very amusing people were doing was putting the king of Israel on his throne. Was, they were taking the king of the universe and raising him and proclaiming him to be king. I think about that the action of, of uh, Caesar, not Caesar, sorry, uh, Pilate, <laughs> um, who wrote those words, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the people said, no, no, don't say that. This, is, this man said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate says what? He says, what I have written, I have written. And so Jesus hangs there with that inscription, king of the Jews. And it is in this very moment that he seems least king-like, least like what Simba thought kingship was supposed to be. And it's at that moment that he is being proclaimed openly for the first time. This is the king, not only of the Jews, but the king of the universe. And so what do we learn about kingship from Jesus? What do we learn about what Jesus did from the idea that he is king? This is the same one that wore, this, well, the same one who wore that mocking robe is the same one who is described in the first chapter of Revelation. If you think of that chapter, he's described as one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, some parallels here, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And that same one was the one on the cross, the one who had just been mocked and dressed up like an amusing picture of a king. What does it mean? What does it mean to be king? See, that whole time Jesus was being mocked and he was being beaten and spit on and ridiculed. He could have called down 12 legions of angels. Actually, the chapter before, he says that. He's, yeah. Don't you know that I could, if I wanted right now, I could call down 12 legions of angels and they would protect me and they would deliver me. He could show his enemies who he really was. The whole time he had that option and he remained silent. What does it mean to be king? What kind of king is King Jesus? I'm going to point out four things today 
as we think about what it means that Jesus died for us on the cross. First, he's a humble king. Second, he is a loving king. Third, he is a righteous king. And fourth, he is a mighty king. First, he's a humble king. So we often refer to Jesus as humble. He is Jesus meek and mild. Jesus who will not break the bruised reed. He's Jesus who has a stern word for the Pharisees, for the powerful. But for the downtrodden, he has kindness and gentleness. I think we ought to take comfort from that fact that Jesus is humble. He tells us in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a beautiful statement of who our Savior is. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And that gentleness, that lowliness, I think, is seen particularly at the crucifixion. The moment where we would obviously be tempted not to be gentle and lowly. I think about Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of, of Jesus, of the suffering servant, where it says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his hour of pain and affliction, Jesus doesn't speak out on his own behalf. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't call down those legions of angels. Right? He could have done so. He could have, you know, think, think of your favorite superhero movie, whatever the thing is that you imagine someone doing, you know. He, he could have called down powers and destroyed everyone there. He could have shown, this is who I am. And yet he was a humble king. Have you ever known someone I say this, I I think probably you have, who always feels it necessary uh, to remind people of how great they are, right? Where it's every every opportunity, it's like, like, oh, did you see what I did? Did you see how great that was? And then you ask the question, why why do we get tempted to do that? I say, do you know somebody? Because it's easier than asking, are you that person? (laughs) Um, I, I can be that person, just... Yeah, being 100% honest. I feel that temptation. I think probably at sometimes we all do because, not because we know that we are great, but because we fear that we are not worth as much as we think we ought to be worth. Right? We, we, we fear that we are not great, and so we try to say, look at me, see how great I am, so that we can fill that, that sense of inadequacy. And yet Jesus like a lamb before its shears, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opens not his mouth. He is a humble king. He doesn't need the approval of man. And so he is able to bear the humiliation of the cross because he doesn't need to speak up in that moment and say, this is who I am. Don't you see me? Don't you know me? Right? He has received, we think of his baptism those words from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I think there's a sense of Jesus knowing in a deep sense, not not only from the Father, but in himself. There's that sense of confidence of who he is and what he has come to do that allows him to say, I don't need to speak up right now. And because I don't need to speak up right now, I can do the thing that needs to be done for you as you are humiliating me. He's a humble king. 
Second, he is a loving king. I think at every moment of Jesus' crucifixion, he faced a choice. Right? He faced the choice, do I save myself from this awful suffering and humiliation and death, which would be far better for myself, it would be far easier, far less pain, or do I continue to suffer for the sake of those that I love? Right? At every moment, he had to make that choice. At every moment, he could have he had the tools available to him, the power available to make that choice. No, I will take the glory and the honor that is due to me right now, or do I continue to suffer for the sake of the ones that I love? And at every moment, he made the decision, I'm going to suffer for the ones that I love. This is one of the most controversial things throughout his ministry was he spent his time among the ones who he ought not to have loved. Right? We think about that with the prostitutes, with the tax collectors and the sinners. It's one of the things that bothered the Pharisees the most, one of the reasons that he ended up being crucified in the first place. And yet I think it's interesting that it's at this very moment, it's at the cross, where he is actually around the most unpleasant, the most unfit people for him to be around. Right? He, he, he didn't mind, you, you see, spending his time around prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Right? The physician came not for the well, but for the sick. And yet you see him here at the very end, not only around true criminals, but around the ones who ought to have known who he was. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest, but those who instead said, no, crucify him, who led that charge. He spent those last moments loving the very least lovable people. And those people were included in those for whom he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I find that deeply comforting, knowing that I am somebody who Jesus had to show that love to because I was equally unlovable. That Jesus saw me as he was preparing for that crucifixion and said, this is one on whom my love has come to rest. This is one not who has earned my love, but this is one who is actively involved in that process of putting me on the cross, of humiliating me for his sin, and yet I love him. There's a line in the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love, that I've always loved. Uh, it says, It was my sins that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was my sins, right? In that picture of the mob of people screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, it was my sins doing that. It was your sins doing that. And yet he loves us. Third, he is a righteous king. You see, if, he, if Jesus was not a humble king, he would never have lowered himself to the humiliation of the cross. If Jesus was not a loving king, he would have had no desire to endure the pain and humiliation and death that he did for the sake of those that he loved. But if he was not a righteous king, then he would not have had the ability, even if he wanted to die for us, for that to actually accomplish what it needed to. But he was a righteous king. See, Jesus didn't just die as an example for us. He didn't just die due to happenstance, but he died for us, as it is said, as the perfect sacrifice. If you think about the Old Testament, 
And we spent a week in that adult Bible class going through the idea of what was a sacrifice in the biblical model. What did it mean to be offered or to offer something as a sacrifice? And there are a few things that are common to every single sacrifice in the Bible. First, it had to be the best. It had to be the, the prime, most optimal example of whatever animal. You know, you took the best lamb, the unblemished lamb. You didn't take the one that was, oh, that one's kind of got a, a broken leg and it's probably not going to heal right, so we can offer that one. No, you offered the best, the first. You offered the one that meant and was worth the most. Not the leftovers, not the one you didn't mind losing. And yet, it's funny that the New Testament says about those sacrifices that they didn't actually atone for sin. Instead, what they did was they pointed to the one who atoned. And what that means is that those very aspects in which we see that the lamb had to be spotless and perfect, unblemished, pointed to the one who could actually come and die unblemished and perfect in a sense that a lamb never could. Not physically, but morally, spiritually. A person who had never sinned, a person who had never gone astray, a person whose every decision had honored and glorified his father. As we look at Jesus, the perfect lamb, again, we see God saw us in our utter neediness, our total inability to save ourselves or to give any recompense for our sins. And he gave, not a lamb, not something that he didn't mind giving, But the Father, the King of the universe, the God of all, gave that which was most valuable to him. Because he loves you. He gave that which is the absolute most worthy thing that could be given on behalf of anyone. He gave his only begotten Son. God gave himself. Do you know how much God loves you? This is what we see at the cross. You see, the cross is often controversial because we don't like the idea, particularly in this modern time, we don't like the idea that God would have to appease his own wrath. Hey, we don't like the idea of a God of wrath in general. Wrath is not a a word that we like in our modern sense. I mean, it probably wasn't a word that that was particularly popular in the Old Testament either. The idea that someone has wrath towards me is not an idea that fills me with comfort and joy. And yet, if we don't embrace the fact that God actually felt that wrath, we won't understand what it meant that Jesus came out of his love for us and out of the Father's love for us, he gave Jesus in order that that wrath might be turned away. For God so loved the world you know, the line that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him may not die but have eternal life. I find Good Friday to be a time not only to contemplate that, to think about that, but in a church this size, it's, it's really easy to, to just assume, right? I, I kind of can look out at all of y'all and, and know you pretty well and not feel like I have to, to make that call to believe, to call to put your faith in Jesus 
But I think it's foolish not to, to expect that, that that is something, even if you have put your faith in him, to, to contemplate, and if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, to be called to, to say, this is the one who has shown such amazing love for you, without whom you have no eternal hope. Will you put your faith in him? Will you put your belief upon him who has loved you to such a degree? Many of us... Um, received a free copy of this book by Dane Ortland a few months ago. Um, the church got some free copies. I want to read a brief section of it. He says, When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us. He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. And all this restraint on his part is not because he has a deluded view of our sinfulness. He knows our sinfulness far more deeply than we do. Indeed, we are aware of just the tip of the iceberg of our depravity, even in our most searching moments of self-knowledge. His restraint simply flows from his tender heart for his people. I want to call you today, however long you have known Jesus, wherever you are in your walk with him, to lay your heart before him. To contemplate his absolute agony on the cross. Not just as, isn't it amazing that that happened? Isn't that such a a crazy story? But to think that the very weight of that agony reveals the weight of his love for you. It's a great quote, um, as I recall, by Augustine. God must have held you very dearly to have paid such a dear cost for you. Finally, you may have remembered I I said there are four things. Um, The last one is that he is a mighty king. And what I mean by that is not what you may think I mean. There's a common way that we can think about Jesus um, and think there was a time when Jesus was humble but he's going to come back again as the mighty king. Do you know what I mean? Okay, this is a kind of, a way of thinking about Jesus. It says he was humble once, right, because he had to be. But he's going to come back again and the humility is gone and instead he's going to be mighty. And what I want you to see, and I think this particularly applies and, and helps us when we think about what it means for us to be Christians is that the conquering Christ is the humble Christ, and the humble Christ is the conquering Christ. In the moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross, seemingly the most helpless, the most utterly destitute of power, was the moment that he was conquering sin, death, and the devil. And as Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil... At that very moment, he decided that he didn't have to cry out to defend himself because he was a humble king. Because Jesus is a powerful king, because Jesus did what he did for us, our lives as Christians are called to look like his. This is the part that's uncomfortable about Good Friday, right? Easter is fun because you think, Jesus rose from the grave, there's resurrection, there's hope, there's life. I love it. 
And that's all true. But what the New Testament teaches us is that often the way that we are moving into that new life is through something that looks a whole lot like the crucifixion. I asked the question, again, in that adult Bible class one week, do you know that you are a bearer of the kingly office? That sounds maybe a little theological. I'll put it more bluntly. Do you know that you are a king? Is that weird? Does that that feel weird to you? You are a bearer of Jesus' kingship in this world. You are in his body. You are one who exercises the authority of Jesus in this world. That's a weighty thing to consider. You know, when I go home and spend six hours watching Netflix, it's like, am I, am I using that kingship really well? I mean, there, there's a reason that Paul frequently says, the hour is late, the need is urgent, spend your time well. And I am frequently convicted of, man, do I take that seriously? Jesus died on the cross for me. I mean, I, I need rest time, right? We all need rest time. I'm not shaming you for, <laughs> for, for resting. But, but to take seriously, there is a call on our lives as Christians to bear out that kingly rule of Jesus in a world that needs to know him. 1 Corinthians 1 uh, puts it like this. It says, Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What I mean by citing that passage is that that was... I think we can read that primarily saying, this is Jesus. God chose the one who seemed like nothing. The one who was humiliated, they dressed him up as a king to laugh at him. God chose to use Jesus in that moment, in that way, to bear his rule. And if we are to bear Jesus' kingship, if we are to bear his rule to a world that needs it, it's going to look a whole lot like that humility of Jesus. And so we are called... As Jesus is a humble king, we are called to follow him in humility. We are called, as he did, to know this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Because God said that about Jesus, if you are in Jesus, if you are one who has put your faith in him, God has said that about you. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We don't need the world to say it. Isn't he fantastic? Isn't he talented and nice? Now, if, if the world's constantly saying that you're not nice, there may, there may be a reason. But primarily, we want to say we don't need the, the approval and the praise of this world because we have the approval of our Father who is in heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Second, we are, we are to follow Jesus in his love. Right, we, we think of that, that beautiful verse out of uh, 1 John chapter 4. We love because he first loved us. It's on the back of many of our t-shirts. I think Gwen's wearing it. Um, we love because he first loved us. As we see Jesus on the cross saying, I will continue to suffer 
Because I love the ones for whom I am suffering, and this is the only way that I can show my love for them in a way that will actually save them. What does God do? He says, if you're going to follow me, what that means is you're going to pick up your cross every single day and you're going to follow. You're going to live like I lived. Third, we follow Jesus in righteousness. That's a a tough one, right? One of the most difficult sayings in the Bible is in Leviticus 11. Be ye holy as I am holy, says the Lord. You say, I'm going to do my best, but that's, that's a tall order. And yet, the New Testament puts such a weight on righteousness, holiness, being like Jesus, because that is how we show his love to the world. If we won't be righteous like Jesus, not that we're going to be perfect like he is, but if we aren't pursuing that eagerly, saying, Jesus, I want to look like you. I want to have the affections that you have. If we won't do that, if we won't practice that daily, and it is a difficult thing, but if we won't do that, then we will not see the power of Jesus at work in our lives because we will not be following him. To follow Jesus is to try and to learn to be righteous. Fourthly, if we follow Jesus in his humility, we follow him in his power. How many of you, if I can ask, feel, you know, if I, if I were to give you a one to ten, I feel like I am powerful? How does that strike you? I know frequently, if I'm just to answer honestly for myself, powerful is not a word that I feel. I feel more like sometimes, maybe frequently, the powerless image that we see, the powerless Jesus who's hanging on a cross, harassed, humiliated, and I fear that if I act the way that I know I should, if I am as bold as I know I ought to be, that I'll feel that way even more. And yet you and I bear the might of Jesus. We bear the power of Jesus if we are following him in his humility and his love and his righteousness. We, we follow him in his might because it is ultimately not up to us. It is his power at work in his way. And so I can look out at you, Christians, people with whom I have spent years, many of you, and say, you are a person who bears the power of Jesus. Years from now, you're going to look back on your life and say, I can see where Jesus' power was at work in my life. Not only in terms of the way I act and I live and I think, but in terms of the world around me because Jesus is powerful and his power is at work in those who are his. I want to close this sermon uh, with a short reading from 1 Peter that I think sums all of this up. This is from 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He is a righteous king. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He is a humble king. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's a confident king. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is a loving king. Brothers, sisters, this is the king who we follow, the king who hung upon that cross because he loved you, because he desired to do this thing that Peter talks about, that by his wounds, every wound that he received, every pain that he went through, by his wounds, you have been healed.